0: Welcome again to the Tabernacle. I'm so glad that you're here, uh, here in Buckley, uh, in Manistee, or wherever you're listening or watching from. I just got to meet, uh, just before this service right here in Buckley, another new family. At any given time, we'll meet someone brand new that maybe was listening or watching online. And I just want you to know that the DNA of our church, if you're new, we get super excited about that. In fact, I think it's a true statement to say, if you're new, we're more excited about you than we are the people who've been here forever. And uh, uh, the people that, are, that have been here forever that are still here aren't offended by that, right? The ones that have been here forever that got offended by that, they left a long time ago, <laughs> right? So, and, and the reason that we get excited about that is we're super excited when people uh, become a part of our faith community or people that are far from God or people want to dive deeper into his word or just have a community of believers they can worship with. When they find a home, we get excited about that. Before we get going in 1 Samuel um, chapter 23, I do want to make one shameless plug, and I want to do it this way. Back in the day, back in the day, right, when we used to walk to school uphill both ways in the snow, barefoot for fun, uh, church used to be open on Sunday morning and on Sunday night and on Wednesday night. That's just kind of how things happened. And, uh, uh, you know, times change. It's not always a good thing. It's not always a bad thing. But times change. People's rhythms change. And, and now it's a little bit different. Uh, uh, one of the reasons uh, that we first did away from Sunday school at this church was because we had a lack of space. And we had so many uh, people that were coming, and this was all credit to God, that uh, uh, we couldn't do Sunday school anymore. So we encouraged people to join small groups. So, Sunday school went away. Uh, Sunday night church went away a long time ago because it was a little overkill, right? Uh, You'd have 300 people on a Sunday morning and then 10 really committed would come on Sunday night. Come on, you know which 10 they were. Uh, Wednesday, you know, it's all over the map. And you might be wondering well, besides uh, a weekend service, where do I get my little pick me up? Here's where the shameless plug comes in we've started a podcast. I don't know if you've heard about it, or if you, just by show of hands here in Manistee. Anyone here checked out the podcast at all? I don't know, the podcast is a blast. If you don't know what a podcast is, join the new millennium and uh, ask one of your kids or one of your grandkids, it's, uh, the short version is it's basically a radio show. It's basically a way to do Sunday night church or even Wednesday night church whenever you feel like it. And it could be on a road trip, um, it can be when you're painting the house, it can be on your way to work or school or what have you, and you can always pause it when you're done with it. So I just wanted to say that is a couple of us get to be a part of that, and it is as fun as a weekend service for us. It is just, yeah, so I don't know. You don't have to watch it if you don't want, but if you do, it's on Spotify. It's on the app wherever you listen to Tabernacle Sermons. You can also get the podcast, and what we're probably most excited with that—it's a place where you can hear people's testimonies, not the short, crazy version, but the long, deep dive of how God changes lives. And God uses that to teach us, to encourage us. So, uh, if if you're looking for something, I encourage you to go there. Has everybody got that? Are we good? All right, if you have a Bible, if you'll go ahead, uh, we're in our study in 1 Samuel, uh, we're in chapter 23, and uh, if you haven't been with us, what um, uh, you probably need to remember is the same way we've been introducing the last couple weeks. David is on the run, and Saul is out to kill him. So Saul has murder on his mind. Saul's sin has led him astray. He's trying to preserve himself, preserve control, preserve power. God's already lifted his hand of blessing. He's removed his Holy Spirit. He's anointed another who now has the Spirit. And uh, uh, Saul's not having it. And David is forced to run. And In fact, in the message last weekend that uh, both Pastor Seth and Pastor Tim shared with us, uh, we saw how far Saul's sin took him. Remember, this was a man who was anointed king and given everything, including the Holy Spirit of God. Where did we see him last week? Butchering 85 priests in cold blood. And if that wasn't enough, he then went to their village, a village of Nob, where every man, woman, and child was also put to death. He's become a butcher. That's a massacre. All because his sin has led him this far. And so that's where we pick up the story in chapter 23. David is still on the run. And, and David's begun to get a little bit of a following. Every ragamuffin and renegade and mercenary and vagabond is kind of hanging out with him. And he's like Robin Hood in the, you know, with his merry men. That's who he is. So here we go. Starting in verse 1. Now they told David... Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And so uh, if we pause right there, essentially David hears that the Philistines are on the raid again. They're they're raiding these border towns and he's already on the run. So he sees an opportunity to kind of continue the fight. Even though he's running from Saul, Saul's trying to kill him. He's got people sent to try to kill him and he's hearing about the massacre of these priests. David asks God, hey, should we intervene here? And he hears from God. And by the way, we don't know exactly how. Did he hear an audible voice? Was it an impression? Is it that priest boy that he brought along that has one of those uh, uh, Old Testament prophet vests, the ephod that used the rocks, you know, the Purim and the Thurim to help him? We don't know. But it's clear because there's no wasted words in scripture. He asked God, should I intervene? God said, yes. And if you do, I'm going to be with you. And so that's what he does. And he saves the town. Pretty cool. You guys with me so far? All right. Verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David in Keilah, that's the priest's son, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war and to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And so we see another miraculous escape. And, and the way it plays out is David has rescued this village, this place called Keilah, but then uh, Saul gets wind of it. And so he motivates the army, mobilizes the forces. We're going to go get David. Do you see the personal vendetta here? This is where, the, in the vernacular, Saul has gone completely red-eyed, right? We're going to go attack our own city in order to get this one that I'm insecure and afraid about. And when David gets word, he summons the priest, bring that ephod thing, that Old Testament. I want to get distracted by that here. But he asked the Lord, is Saul coming down, and if he comes down... Are these people who I just saved going to give me up? And God says, yes and yes. Yes. Saul's coming. He's coming for you. He's coming to kill you. And yes, these people you just saved, they're going to give you up. But it's, it's, it's pretty important. It's pretty key. If you look at verse 14, it says, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Who's still in control here? God's in control. Try as Saul may. God's not going to allow it. We keep on. Verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, I love this part. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And when the two of them had made a covenant before the Lord, David remained at Horash and Jonathan went home. And so remember, we said a few weeks ago that when David and Jonathan parted, that's the last time that they would uh, be on the same side, but it wouldn't be the last time that they would see one another. Jonathan just leaves his dad. We don't know how he knew. We don't know how he got through. Uh, but on his own, he goes and finds David in the wilderness of Zith. And in those beautiful words, the way a friend can encourage another friend, he strengthened his hand in God. Right now I'm reminded of a sermon uh, that was preached here uh, uh, by Pastor Britton and, and um, I believe it was Ben weeks ago where they were no it was Ben or Britton and Tim where they were preaching about the value of true friendship. You remember that? The value of true friendship. And one of the points they drove home is, we think we have a lot of friends because we have a lot of followers on social media, but those aren't really friends. And if you can have just a couple friends that you can really count on. Do you have friends like that? I don't want to rehash that message. But Jonathan risked a lot to go visit his friend David. And if there's no wasted words in Scripture, it says, and strengthened his hand in God. Strengthened him on the path. Encouraged him at a cost to himself. We don't see Jonathan going, man, it's so hot. My dad's crazy, man. You've caused me a lot of problems. No, I'm here to encourage you. You're going to be king. And I'm going to be right next to you. Even my dad knows this. Now, Jonathan couldn't see the future. Jonathan didn't know that he wouldn't stand beside David. That's getting ahead of the story. The point is he encourages him and that friendship. So verse 19, then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakilla which is, is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there, for it has told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. So David's hiding in the wilderness of Ziph, and now the Ziphites are going to sell him out. Wherever he goes, there's someone that wants to make a little money or get a little bit ahead or, or find an advantage some way. And these people are basically going to the king saying, we'll sell them out to you. And Saul's excited about that. So excited, he gives them specific instructions. Now he's going to mobilize the army again and he find out every place he hides. Thank you for having compassion. And then the chapter ends this way. It says, now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimah, and Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and on his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now I know that was a rather long chapter and all it is is Saul in pursuit and David on the run and you might be asking, hurry up and get to the point, what does this have to do with us? It is an ancient text and it is ancient scripture but I wanted to read all of it so we could get a flavor of what is really happening. God has anointed David, had him anointed by the prophet Samuel. He has placed his spirit on him. He is to be the anointed king He will be the savior of his people from their enemies. Meanwhile, this other one has been disobedient. The spirit has left him. He's gone completely red-eyed. And we see all of these different incidences where God himself is intervening. The first time, God tells him, get out of there. You got to leave. Keilah, Saul's coming and they'll sell you out. He's listening to God. And so he goes, right? And then we see uh, God not allowing David to be caught by Saul, no matter what Saul seemed to do. And in the last incident, even the people around him are about to sell him out. David and his merry men are on the run. We get to a place where he's almost cornered. They're, They're on either side of a ridge. All they have to do is go right over the top and it's over. And just at the last, moment. Do you ever have one of these moments? One of these just so happened last moments, right? Just at the last moment, a messenger arrives and says, we got bigger problems, Saul. I know you're out here in this little vendetta, but back where you're supposed to be fighting Philistines, they are raiding, they're attacking the towns. If we don't, if we don't go take care of that, we're going to have much bigger problems with David. God saves him again. So what does it have to do with us. I'm getting there. I think in this passage, I feel, I believe, that we need to focus on Saul. Because I don't know about you, but I've read the Bible for too long where I'm the hero, where I'm David. Where I'm the anointed one that's seeking the Lord and doing right and fighting the right battles. But when I'm really honest, what, what I really probably need more help with is the times that I've been just like Saul. Do you know what I mean when I say completely red-eyed? Where you can't think straight, you can't see straight, when the, whatever it is, it's over, and you're like, why did I say that? Am I the only one that's ever been there? Why did I do that? Why did I respond that way? You know, my wife and kids, they see me in all my <laughs> unkempt glory. At home. You know, they say more is caught than taught. And I've become hyper aware that, you know, my kids would probably have to sit through more sermons than your average bear. But probably the sermons that matter the most are the ones that don't happen in the tabernacle. They're the ones where they see dad in the car or on the (laughs) (laughs) sidelines or in the hallways or first thing in the morning. Or when I'm trying to do a home project, or trying to fix out anything besides where the keys go in a car, right? Sometimes I'm like Saul. And so in looking at Saul in this story, in fact, looking at Saul's collective body of work, there's only one point to this message, and it's this: is that sin makes you stupid. If you're taking notes, write that down. Now, I know you can go to much more polished churches and get a lot more these and thous, but I'm just going to talk English to normal people because I am one, right? And I don't think there's a truer statement that we could make than that. Sin makes you stupid. In fact, because I want us to remember that, if you've got a screen or you're watching online, I just want you to repeat it with me. Just read it right off the screen. It's real simple. If you can read... Because I wanted to get from here into here and then maybe down into here, right? Let's try it together. You ready? Sin makes you stupid. It does. And while we're sane, we need to talk about it. So hopefully the moments that we go insane, something might jog in our memory. Where do I get sin makes you stupid? Well, let's just look at four different verses. We see Saul's behavior. First of all, in verse 7, it says that, uh, um, you know, when it was told Saul that had David, when David had come into Keilah, he'd gone into that village, and apparently wherever that village was, if you were in it, it was easy to besiege, because it had gates and it had bars, right? So it's a fortified city, and fortified's not always good. That means we can lock you in, and it says in verse 7... And Saul said, God has given him into my hand. Can we, what? How did Saul get there logically? You were told to obey and you didn't. You were told to obey again. You did it halfway. You were warned. You were told the spirit is going to leave you now. The kingdom has been torn from you. It's been given to another, a man after my own heart. He knows who it is by now. He knows that it's David. He knows that it's over. He's lost control. He's lost the crown. He's lost everything. God is not happy with you because you are disobedient, Saul. Success is going to David Defeats are going to Saul over and over and over. Did I mention that we just butchered 85 priests of Almighty God, thinking that was a good thing? We massacred an entire village. You've gone completely red-eyed or stupid in your sin. And now you have the gall to say, God's on my side. God has given him into my hand. Am I the only one here that thinks that that's a completely stupid summary of where we're at? He's gone completely to the side of justifying his own sin, rationalizing his own sin. And I started to think how many times I'm that way. What does it have to do with us? Oh, I haven't murdered any priests. I, 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 you know, that's a horrible thing. I haven't massacred a village. Yeah, but think about how he's got to get there. What is Saul after? Saul's after self. Saul's not about pleasing God. Saul's buying into this lie. In fact, this is a lie I hear a lot from people. I've heard it from myself. You know, I really think God wants us to be happy. Oh, because if God wants us to be happy, and that's all that God's about is my happiness and what feels good right now. You know what happens? We start justifying things. We start taking a little bit that doesn't belong to us. We start looking in places we shouldn't be looking. We start cutting corners that we shouldn't cut. We start deciding that, yeah, I know that that's what God's law says, but I'm going to do it this way because, you know what? I'm not happy and I need this in order to be happy. And God wouldn't want me to be not happy, now would he? Tell me if I'm not right here. And I'm sad to say, in, in the 18 years that I've been a part of our church, I had a lot of conversations. And Tim and I have shared a lot of notes. And other pastors on our staff, we've shared a lot of notes. And one of the saddest things is when you're talking to somebody who's going to give up on 15, 20, or 25, or 30 years of marriage because he's not happy in the moment. And you're talking to a guy who's been to church, a guy who's been to fight club, a guy who's been baptized, who's been in it to win it, but he's going through a rough patch and he decides now it's okay to check out on a marriage because he's not happy. And God wouldn't him want him to not be happy. And, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm not picking on divorce. There's a million and one reasons for it. I'm not picking on that. But you see the thinking. The sin is... I'm going to make myself out to be God, my happiness, what I want in the moment. And we become like a child throwing a tantrum. I just long for the good old days when we could spank other people's kids. Sorry, did I say that out loud? (laughs) Sin makes you stupid. And Saul is rationalizing that somehow God wants him to murder God's anointed. We see it again in verse 17 from the words of Jonathan. Jonathan, remember, he snuck out to see David. And it says, and he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king. Saul, my father, also knows this. Now, this is why it's critical that we say things over and over like there's no wasted words in scripture. We take all of it. You either take all of it or none of it, because forever you're trying to figure out what to take and what not to take, and it's above your pay grade and mine, right? So we take all of it, no wasted words. And so it says here, from Jonathan's mouth, whatever Jonathan has observed, he knows in his heart, as a follower of God, David, you shall be king. And that's where he says, I shall be next to you. And Jonathan, who knows his father well, says, Saul, my father, also knows this. Well, then why is Saul trying to kill David? Because he's completely in denial. Have you ever followed a path knowing that what you're doing is wrong, but you just don't get off of it because of pride? Like, you know deep down this isn't right. Have you ever had one of those out-of-body experiences, or is that only me? When it's like these words are coming out, don't say them, but they just keep coming. It's easier to just let him come out, and I know I probably shouldn't have said it. We deny what is real. This is what Saul's doing. He knows David's going to be king. There's no stopping God. So he's rationalizing his sin. He's in denial. Then in verse 21, when those people came to uh, Saul... And said, hey, we know where David's hiding. We'll sell him out to you. He's, and Saul said, verse 21, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Can we stop again and remind ourselves what Saul's trying to do? Commit a murder. He's, he wants to murder David. And he's, he's gaslighting everyone, including himself. I'm the victim here. Right? Right? I'm the victim here. It's like talking to my kids when they get a referral from school. Sorry, I probably shouldn't go there. But it, right, yeah, it's too close to home. So now he's promising people that, you know what, the Lord's going to bless you because you've had compassion on who's supposed to be the real king. This is addict behavior. This is the height of manipulation. He's asking all these people to be raging codependents and help me in my sin. No one's going to tell me the truth. You're really being blessed because you're helping me do what I'm not supposed to be doing. And then last, do we see in verse 27, when God saves them by allowing the Philistines to come in. Verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. Do you remember what um, Saul was charged to do when he was first made king? Deliver his people from the Philistines. You had one job. Not to make a bunch of laws, not to make yourself look good, not to make yourself wealthy. You are to lead these people, protect these people, because these people are being oppressed and attacked by the Philistines. That was your job, Saul. So now he's completely distracted. He's blinded by his sin. He's in denial because of his sin. He's full of pride and self, so he's trying to manipulate others in order to accomplish his sin. And now the little cherry on top, we're reminded that he's completely distracted from the mission of what he's supposed to be doing, namely king and protector of his people. And now we've got cities being ravaged by the Philistines because you're off on a wild goose chase. Does that sound familiar to our lives? Oh, probably not you, but someone else, some other wicked sinner, certainly not you. You're in church. But have you ever seen Christians get completely distracted from the mission because their own agenda became more important than what God might be wanting to do? We see that all the time. I've seen that in my own life when I completely lose the plot. Here's the point. While we're saying and talking about it, we need to be reminded that sin makes you stupid. Now, I'm not being mean. Look up the definition of stupid if you want to. That means when you make unintelligent, rash, careless decisions, actions, or words. And it can happen because of a variety of circumstances. But when we see the shiny thing, we forget what's most important. We want the shiny thing. We get distracted from the mission. We go in denial. We start justifying ourselves. We start believing, oh, God just wants me to be happy. And make no mistake, we're happiest when we're serving God, even when we're suffering. But when we chase after earthly happy, we miss out on joy. And Saul's completely lost the plot. You know, we've said this multiple times over and over and over. And we don't even know who first said it. In fact, we even repeated it for those of us who were at the men's retreat last weekend. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay and costs you more than you want to pay. That's the big giant stop sign in front of sin. It takes, it keeps, and it costs. It takes, it keeps, and it costs. You know, I'm reminded of the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. The prodigal son was the son of a rich man. He was a son that asked his father for his inheritance early, and his father gave it to him. How did he get from that to, all right, I'm getting out of this small town, I'm leaving northern Michigan, I've got all this money. How did that turn into a pig pen? Sin made him stupid. And it's a little bit of that, and then I need a little bit more of that, and then you're sliding down the hill and you can't stop. And now you're broke, you're bankrupt, you got no friends, and you're living in a pig pen. It takes you further than you want to go. It always does. Keeps you longer than you want to stay. I'm thinking about the rich young ruler who came to see Jesus late one night, this great teacher, this man who had the very words of God on his lips and he didn't want anyone else to see him. So he sneaks in and, and he has this conversation with Jesus and he goes, what must I do uh, to have eternal life? And, and it, Jesus turns it back on him and you know, he starts talking about the great command loving God and loving people. And he says, oh, I've kept all the commands since I was a young boy. But then he tries to justify himself, and Jesus sees where his point of need is. Do you remember this story? It's one of the saddest stories in the New Testament. Jesus says to the rich young ruler, he says, okay, I'll tell you, if you want to justify yourself, do this. Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And we've talked before, that doesn't mean we all have to sell everything we have and just go walking around naked with nothing, following, look look at me, I'm naked and following Jesus. Well, he said sell everything, don't look at me like that. That includes this, I assume, right? Well, it says the rich young ruler went away very sad because he was very wealthy. How is that sin? The sin of idolizing his wealth and his position was keeping him longer than he wanted to stay. He was stuck. Here was a guy that was talking to God in flesh who invited him. You want to follow me? I'll make you number 13. You could be the 13th disciple. But I, I can't. Something's keeping me. Sin had made him stupid. You missed the chance. So it takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. It costs more than you want to pay. One of the stories we don't like to talk about a lot is a story that Jesus told of another rich man. And this rich man lived his whole life with a poor man whose name was Lazarus. Not Lazarus who came back from the dead. A different guy, Lazarus, who always hung out outside of his home. And that rich man never shared any of his food, any of his stuff with that man. They both die. This is a story Jesus told. And the way Jesus tells the story is Lazarus, the poor man, went to heaven. The rich man, who didn't help, went to hell. And in the story, Jesus' story, it says that the rich man somehow could see the poor man Lazarus in the glory of God in the parable. And he begged, he begged that someone would send him a message, that he would come bring him some water to touch the tip of his tongue, just to get a little bit of relief. Remember that story? It's a horrible story with a lot of different angles about how horrible hell is and and who you think might get there is not going to get there, and who you don't think is going to get there is going to go to the other place, and so it's a frightening story. But here's the point. It cost him everything. When we say sin costs you more than you want to pay, all you have to do is watch the news to see how many people, they couldn't stop the slide. Once they started the slide with sin, just a little compromise, it took them to a place where they didn't want to go, where they never could have imagined they would go. Sin makes you stupid. It does. It makes you make stupid decisions, makes you pay exorbitant wages, exorbitant fines, price and you find yourself in a place you never want to be. Is that heavy? We'll just leave it right there. We'll see you next week. No, I'm just kidding. There's a little bit of good news. Here's the good news. Remember what happened to David at the end of the story? God rescued him. He rescued him at a place that got renamed Rock of Escape. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian. There is a rock of escape. Do you believe that? There's a rock of escape, and the rock of escape is Jesus, who the New Testament calls the cornerstone. Where Jesus said about himself, he said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is the rock of escape. How do we escape sin from making us stupid, making us make stupid decisions and and, and turn our lives into a parade of stupidness? Well, Jesus gives us his word to help us navigate and escape our stupid decisions. Jesus gives us his spirit, right? He said, those who receive me by faith, I will send, I will baptize you with my Holy Spirit. The moment you become a Christian, the spirit of God lives in you. And the Christian life is a process of learning again to listen to his spirit. John, listen to the spirit, listen to his word. That's how this rock of escape saves us. The rock of escape saves us through his people. His people are used. Little messengers, just like Saul was saved from some kind of stupid... He wasn't really saved, but David was saved by the messenger coming to get Saul off the the chase, right? Sometimes you don't want to hear from those messengers. There's been times when sin has made me stupid, and I've had people speak truth to me, and it's like, well, well, you're mean. I've never said that to Tim, but I've thought it. I don't know why I thought about that. I keep picking on Tim, but... Well, I'll tell you why. Because God and his spirit put him in my life to say things that I needed to hear when I didn't want to hear them. And I don't have time to give you the circumstances of this, but I was about ready to make a horrible decision. (laughs) And I'm the boss. And he looked me in the eye and said, Hey, John, have you ever thought about this, that it's not all about you? thank you. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm throwing spears at him in my heart, right? And to see how God and his spirit use that to be a, a rock of escape for me, a rock of escape. So now I can look back on that and go, hey, thank you for telling me the truth. I need to hear the truth. And don't get me wrong. He's not the puppet master. I've had to tell him the truth before. I'm not going to tell you the thousand and one times my wife has told me the truth, and don't you tell her either. God uses his word, his spirit, his people to get our eyes off ourselves, out of denial, out of self-worship, out of being completely red-eyed. When sin makes us stupid, God gives us a way of escape. So I don't know where you're at. But I think it's a message worth hearing. The band's going to come and we're going to worship both locations. If you'd bow your heads with me. It's one of my favorite things to ask after we're done with God's word is just a simple question. What is God saying to you? What has he been saying to you? Are you in a stupid place because you've stopped listening to God, his word, his people? Have you face-planted because of circumstances? Are you in the middle of going down that road? Have you bought into the lie, believing that everything's about you and you're supposed to be happy and maintain control? If you're a Christian, the drill is simply to repent, to turn from the stupid way back to the God way, to turn from making a mess before it's too late and back to submission, surrender, obedience, and fellowship. God, we praise you and we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. God, I thank you for sending Jesus into the world to be our ultimate rock of escape, but also our rock of escape for every moment and every situation. That we can take our eyes off of ourselves, out of our own navels, and instead fix our eyes on Jesus. Thank you, God, that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Thank you, God, that... For the joy set before him, he endured the cross for me. He endured the cross for us so that he can be a worthy sacrifice and our worthy king who forgives and welcomes us home. God, it's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. And church, if you agree, say amen.